Well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, happy Easter. It's great to see you. My name is uh, Matt Howell, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I have gotten so many comments about what I am wearing today. Somebody said, somebody said, you look like Mr. Mid-South, you're just the embodiment of the Mid-South. I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm, I'm, thank you, whoever said that. Um, but I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to Redeemer. If you are uh, just checking out Christianity, if you're just curious about the claims of Jesus, if you are uh, critical of the claims of Jesus, if you're committed to the claims of Jesus, confused about the claims of Jesus, however you find yourself this morning, we're glad that you're here and chosen to hang out with us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest in His love, and as we remind one another of His love, and as we reflect His love to our friends and our neighbors here in Midtown through service and relationships and doing justice. And so that's a little bit about who we are, community of people trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect His love. And uh, in order to set up this passage that was just read for you this morning, um, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, The Moth. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's a podcast uh, that really is just a compilation of true stories that uh, are told by, you know, the people that experience those stories themselves. So just non-professional storytellers that are just getting on a stage and telling their stories, and it gets recorded, and then we listen to them. And one of my favorite ones was from a number of years ago, I heard this story from a man named Bradford Jordan. What you need to know about Bradford Jordan is that Bradford was dating this uh, woman. They've been dating for quite some time, and they were getting to the point in their relationship where they were talking about having kids. And she really wanted to have children, and he did not. For him, he said, you know, I, I have no interest in having children, this is, that's just not my thing. And this was kind of a, beginning to be a little bit of a deal breaker for their relationship. And so, in order to kind of figure out, do I stay in this relationship and have children, or do I need to cut things off with this person that I really care about, he, he was in New York City and he decided to fly to his, his childhood home in California to kind of think things over. He takes a spring break this week, and he's in California at his childhood house. He's in his, his childhood room right across the hallway from his dad's room, and he's sitting there one night on his iPad, and, and, uh, and you know, bing, this email comes through. It's an email from this woman named Stephanie Miller, which is not a name that he recognized. And the email subject said, I have something to tell you. So he clicks it, and here's what it says. It says… Dear Bradford, in 2005, when you were living in Oxford, we were introduced by a mutual friend, and we had too much to drink and hooked up. And I never told you, but I got pregnant that night. And it's been five years, and I've been talking with my therapist, and we agreed that this was the right time to reach out to you. So whether or not you want to be involved in your son's life is up to you. Email back if interested. And he just breaks down sobbing at this news. And he, and, he, and he goes across the hall to his dad's room, and his dad, you know, you know takes him into his room, and his dad takes him over to the, to the talking couch. In his room, he had a, two couches, one for talking, one for cuddling. And he takes him to the talking couch, and he sits down, and he, and he pulls up this email, and he reads it to his dad, and he just breaks down. And, and he says, in that moment, something changed. 
Here's what he says. He says, I instantly felt boundless and limitless love for this kid. I didn't know where he was, but I knew I would do anything for him. So the next morning, he decides to call his girlfriend and to communicate to her, I do want to have a family. And oh yeah, by the way, uh, I already have one. And so he calls her. Remember, he's in California, she's in New York, and he calls her. She gets on the phone, and he says, I want you to sit down. Uh, you know how we've been talking about having kids, and I've been really resistant to this idea. Well, something has changed. Uh, last night, I got an email, and she says, from Stephanie Miller? And he's like, uh, how do you? And she says, April Fools, I guess you do want kids. They're no longer dating, by the way. Um, she ended up marrying somebody else and has kids with somebody else. He married somebody else, ended up having kids with somebody else, probably because of the April Fool's email. But the reason I tell you that story is because um, transformation happens when you receive good news. Here he is, and he's sitting there, and he receives this email, this good news, and it generates something inside of him that was not there before. Something gets activated that was, he experiences transformation. And this passage that was read really illustrates the same thing. The point of this passage is that transformation happens when you receive good news. In fact, you see it right there in verse 1 when Paul uses that word gospel. He says, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. The word gospel is just the word good news. He says, you received and heard this good news, and what did it do? It says, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, which means being healed, being transformed. They received this good news, and it transformed them. What was this news, and how did it transform them? Those are the two questions I want to try to answer with you this morning. What is this news, and what does it do? What is the news, what does it do? First, what is this news? Look at verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He, he's reminding them, I received this good news, and then I turned around and I delivered it to you, which is the way it always works. Whenever you get excited about something, you naturally want to share it. You, you, uh, you, know, you read a thought-provoking article and you post it and you share it with people. You see a really hilarious meme or a YouTube video and you just call whoever's in the room over, you've got you to come watch this, you've got to come watch this. Or you, know, you get really into a podcast or a show on Netflix and you just evangelize everybody. You, you've, you've, you have, how have you not seen Ted Lasso yet? You've got to stop everything you're doing and watch Ted Lasso. This is what we do. When we get excited about something, we naturally want to share it. And Paul is saying, I heard this good news, and it was so astounding to me, I turned around and I shared it with you. And then he kind of breaks down what this news is, and you can kind of see it there. He breaks it down in four components. Each component begins with the word that. So I'm going to look at each of these four components, although we're going to just group the first two together. So here's component number one and, verse, and number two. You find this in verse three if you're following that. Component one and two in verse three. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried. He's saying Jesus was crucified, and He was buried. He was a real man that was actually executed. He actually lost His life. 
They put it, when they put him in the grave, they said and they thought, this is it. We are never hearing from this person again. It's over. Game over for Jesus and this whole movement. Why is that important? Why is it such a big deal that this guy Jesus died? Well, Paul tells you he died for our sins. That's the language Paul uses. He was crucified and he died for our sins. And I realize that word can be a little off-putting these days. That, that's a word that has been weaponized in certain religious circles. It can feel shamey. It can feel judgy. I get that. I want you to think about this. Uh, think about this, though. I have been struck by, maybe, maybe you have sensed it too, that our culture has this renewed affirmation towards justice. Haven't you sensed that? Haven't you felt that? Everybody's talking about that. that even the, the language of justice, equity, equality is all over the you know, NBA players' uniforms. It's all over the NCAA practice uniforms. Everybody's talking about justice. It's a big deal. And uh, in some ways, this is also what's behind cancel culture. I mean, cancel culture is this response. We see these, uh, we hear these stories of people who have done these horrific things or are doing these horrific things, and there's this instinct in our culture that's coming out that says whoever is responsible for these things must be held accountable. This is not okay. Sexual assault doesn't get a pass. Racism, not okay. And there is this surge of things are breaking in our world and in our society, and somebody has to pay for this. Somebody has to deal with this. That's the instinct. Uh, think about it like this. Um, my family just got a Nintendo Switch, so our children are finally happy. They will never be sad again. And if you were to come over to our house and play Nintendo Switch, you play Mario Kart, and you're getting too aggressive, you're taking the turns too sharply, and you break the switch. If it's broken, somebody has to pay for it. Either you pay for it by paying to get it fixed or paying to get a, a new one for us, or we pay for it. We have to buy a new switch, or we pay for it in the sense that we no longer have one that works anymore. My point is, if something is broken, it doesn't just get fixed automatically. Someone has to step in and pay for it. Because of our sin, our entitlement, our anger, our hatred, our rage, our laziness, whatever, it has broken the world. And we look at it and we sense it and we feel somebody has to pay for this. And the good news of the gospel, the good news is that God himself comes and pays for it. He doesn't make us pay for it, but rather in the person of Jesus, he climbs up on a cross and he bears the full weight of God's fury for the way that the world is broken. He absorbs all of God's judgment and wrath in that moment on the cross. He dies for our sins. Now, you might hear that and say, oh my gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath, a God of fury. I want to believe in a God of love. And I get that. I would just say, think this through. Does your, how does your God feel about mass shootings? How does your God feel about hate crimes? How does your God feel about racial injustice, sexual assault? Our longing for justice in our current cultural moment, I think, is a longing for the God of the Bible, a God who so loves His world that when it breaks, He hates it and wants to pay for it Himself. And so he comes and deals with it on the cross. Jesus gets crucified, dead, and buried for our sins. That's component one and two. Here's component three. 
Look at verse 4. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is an outlandish claim, that God raised this dead person from the grave. He actually brought somebody back to life. This is why we're here this morning. This is why the church is, is because of this claim. This is why, this is, this is why we're celebrating Easter. It's not because of the arrival of spring. It's not because of the chocolate bunnies. It's not because of the marshmallow peeps. It's not because of those nasty Cadbury eggs where they make the insides look like egg yolk and snot. It's not that. We are here because of this claim that God raised a man from the grave, and that really does change everything. That introduces hope into a world that is broken and sad. Here we have an example in real life where hope has broken into extreme darkness. It seems like death wins, doesn't it? I mean, when you look out of the world and and your own stories and your own families and 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 what you've experienced, it seems, objectively speaking, death wins. It gets the last say. And here comes Easter as this protest against death itself and says it doesn't get the last say. All of our pain, all of our loss, all of our suffering has a resolution coming. That is our hope because of this moment, because Jesus came out of the grave. That is what we hook everything up to, that he was raised from the dead. Here's component number four, verse five. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. He raised from the dead and people saw him. People actually saw him and they put their fingers in his wounds I want you to see the claim of the Bible is that this is an actual physical, bodily, historical event. The Bible is not saying that Easter is a metaphor, that it's, that it's, it's a myth, that, you know, there's good news, that uh, spring always comes after winter, that um, there's a silver lining to all of your dark clouds. Take the Bible seriously enough to say, no, that's not what the, the Bible is actually saying that somebody rose from the grave and people saw him. That's quite a claim. But I love, I love what it says in verse 6, this little add-on. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You see what Paul is saying. He is saying, you can go ask those people about what they witnessed. This is so huge because if you've ever been to a um, religious studies class, critical scholars will tell you that the New Testament documents were written hundreds, hundreds of years after the actual events themselves, which means they aren't really reliable because they're so far removed. There's so much time that has passed, and you know how the game of telephone works. They tell these stories, and things get embellished, and then it becomes this kind of legend, and the Bible we have now is just kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. But here's what I want you to see. Paul is writing this letter within the lifetime of the actual witnesses. Scholars are more and more saying this book was probably written 15, 20, 25 years after the actual events that happened. The reason why this is so important is because if Paul were just making this up, if Paul were saying, hey, somebody raised from the grave and tricks everybody into believing these crazy claims, everybody who would have been around at this point could have said, no, I was there. I never saw that. That's crazy. That you, you have to be alive to contradict those kind of claims. Let's just say, put it into our context, let's say in 15 years from now I wrote a book called The Midtown Riot of 2021. 
And I tell the story of how it was a glorious Easter Sunday in Memphis, Tennessee, and the people at Redeemer, they got so angry with this new preacher's Easter sermon, his first Easter sermon, and they get so angry with him, and they storm out of the warehouse, and they go down Cooper, and they, they destroy all the businesses. They go into Cooper Young, and they loot all the restaurants, and they burn the beauty shop to the ground. It was crazy. I'd write a book about it. I'd get millions you would be around, most of, most of you in 15 years will still be around to say, hey, uh, I was there. That's crazy. That never happened. We heard a sermon. It was awesome. <laughs> but here's my point. If you want to fabricate something, if you want to make something up, you have to wait until all of the original eyewitnesses are dead. That's the only way you can even get it off the ground, but Paul assumes they're still alive. In fact, he says 500 of them saw Jesus you can go talk to them. Go interview them. They would love to tell you what they saw. This is crazy. This actually happened. This is the news that Paul is saying. Jesus was crucified, buried. He was raised from the grave three days later, and then people actually saw him. That's the news. What does it do? So what? Let's look at the second question. What does that do? And in some ways, it's a little crazy to try to answer that question in just a few minutes because in some way, that's what the Christian church has been doing for the past 2,000 years. We get together and we live our lives together to try to flesh out the implications of, okay, if that thing actually happened, wh what do we do now? So I at least want to try to show you two things from this passage of if you are to receive that news, what does it do? Here's the first thing. It saves you from your losses. It saves you from your losses, from your failures. If you look further down in verse 8 and 9, Paul mentions that Jesus appeared lastly to him, that Jesus actually showed up and visited this dude named Paul, and he's a little bit confused and flabbergasted why Jesus would do this, and, he, and here's why. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you know anything about Paul's story, you know that before he was a Christian, he hunted down and aided in the execution of Christians, just a religious terrorist. It's a monster. And yet, what does he say about himself? Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He has so internalized this gospel of grace, it revolutionizes how he understands his own story. You know, if, 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 you know, if Paul were living in, in our generation, he would totally be canceled. He's a monster of a human being, and yet he says, I'm not afraid to talk about those things, those horrible things that I've done in my past, because Grace has changed the way that I understand myself. It has redefined my relationship with my own losses, with my own failures, and therefore I'm free to admit it. I mean, he wrote it down in the Bible for like millions and millions of people like us to read about. He is so not afraid to address the, you know, the blemishes in his own life because the grace of God has freedom. It saves him from his losses. Those things don't define his story anymore. They don't control his life anymore. Here's my question for you. What do you do with your losses, with your moral failures, your regret, 
the way that you have contributed in your own way to the sadness and the breakdown of the world. What do you do with that? If you don't have a way to deal with your guilt, you will deny it and you will ignore it, which means you'll never be able to assume responsibility. You'll never be able to admit it. You'll never be able to ask for forgiveness. You'll never be able to apologize, and you will therefore become a dangerous person. The more you are convinced that you do not contribute to the breakdown in the, of the world and contribute sadness to the world, the more dangerous of a person you are. And yet here comes the gospel, this story, this news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it frees you to admit those things. It frees you from the weight of your own losses and your own guilt and your own story. And you're no longer afraid to talk about those things. You're, you're no longer afraid to not face them. Why? Because by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's humility. That's openness. That's a lack of defensiveness. That's courage. Grace frees you and saves you from your losses. And here's the last thing. It also saves you from your wins. It saves you from your success. Look, at, look, at the end, uh, look down at verse 10. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the other apostles, which kind of sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? On the one hand, he's saying, I am unworthy to be called an apostle, and yet I worked way harder than all of them. What's he doing? He's elevating his wins, his success, his gifts, his work ethic. He's looking at something that he does really well. I work really hard, and yet what does he say right after that? though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see that? Grace redefines his relationship with his losses and also redefines his relationship with his wins. Most people live their life as if on the horizon, there, there's, there's a set of perfect circumstances that if I can just get there, my soul will be satisfied. If, if, and I'm so close, if I can just turn that corner, if I can just read the, the, those books, if, if I can just land that job or get together and, and marry that person or be in shape or uh, have these kind of kids and be in that kind of neighborhood and, and, and send my kids to that kind of school, then I'll be at rest. And it's a lie. And you all, you know it. Because we've all experienced the disappointment after you win. We've all experienced the feeling of emptiness after you get the thing that you wanted to get so bad. If your whole life is chasing this idea of if I just get around the corner, then I'll be happy, then your whole life is a myth driven by anxiety and disappointment. But if the resurrection actually happened, if the gospel of grace is actually true, this means there is more to your life than success. In fact, it, it, it puts your wins, it, put your, it puts your achievements in its proper perspective because you can look at it and appreciate it and enjoy it, and you can also say like Paul, and yet it was all because of his grace. It's all a gift. I got these things, I achieved these things, oh, and it's wonderful and I enjoy these things, but there's more than this. And it makes me actually grateful for what I actually have because it puts it into perspective, this is actually just God's gift to me. If the resurrection is true, this means that it frees you from hooking up your hopes and your dreams to things 
that are finite and vulnerable and insecure, and it hooks them to something eternal and fixed and secure. Put all that together. Don't you see how the resurrection just changes everything? I said, I said at the beginning that transformation happens when you receive good news. There's a difference between hearing good news and receiving good news. In the same way, there's a difference between being handed a jalapeno pepper and biting it. You know, it's, 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 you know if it's in your hand, it does nothing for you. If you bite it, then it you know, lights your face on fire. Only when you receive this good news, when you bite and you take it in, that's when the transformation happens. How does, how does that happen? Here's how it happens. It's when you look at the story of Jesus. You look at the good news, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the story of unfathomable grace and love. When you look at that and you begin to sense in your being, I need to be a part of that story. Here's what's so beautiful about the gospel is that you sensing your need is all you need to become a part of that story. When you sense your need for that story, that's what actually begins to hook you up into it. It's good news and is available for the taking. Consider it an invitation. Let me pray. Father, as we gather together on this glorious day, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And would this charge and shock our hearts with such hope, with such transforming power that we might walk out of this warehouse as different people, people who relate to our wins differently, people who relate to our losses differently, people who relate to our neighbors differently, people who relate to our money and sex and everything differently because of the wonder of this story. Transform us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.